Hey everybody and welcome to episode three of This Martial Life. I am very excited to share this uh, particular episode with you. Um, and gosh, every episode so far has been uh, pretty exciting to share. But I have Sensei Shea Jackson, a former instructor of mine. Uh, and I guess, you know what, I, I can't call him a former instructor because I still learn something from him every time I, I have a conversation with him. And uh, I look forward to the day that we uh, that we can reconnect again in the same location because he it, it just never ceases to amaze me that every single time that that we that we get together I can just pick up something that I had never thought of or something from his uh, really deep tool set um, that he has from the training in American Kempo and then even, you know, his time with uh, Professor Barongan, you know, he just picked up so much and was able to synthesize so much and then translate that into some really interesting lessons uh, for the the students at the school. And, uh, you know, when he came in, you know, he refers refers to himself as uh, a savage or, or having us think that he was a savage when he came in. And, you know, while, while he gets a, a kick out of that, I think there was definitely some moments where we were like, oh my God, who is this guy? Uh, what's he doing here? You know, it's it's a little threatening because he was just so immensely talented in, in, in ways that we hadn't seen before. And I, uh, I remember being incredibly intimidated by him when he first came in and not because he was, you know, arrogant or a jerk or anything like that. He was just, he, he just had a presence about him and, um, you know, he still does. And it's funny to, to kick back into these conversations. Um, you know, so many years later, we, we just kind of, or I feel like when he's talking, it's just, you know, back to the, the old ways, he's always got a lesson to share. And uh, I'm always, you know, very receptive to, to what he's got to teach. And, you know, we talk uh, a lot about how he came up in the martial arts and, um, you know, I think this is just part one of, of the Shea Jackson story. Um, I am excited to have him on again in the future, uh, just because, you know, as as a guy uh, who I've had the, as a human being that I've had the, the pleasure of getting to know over the years, um, he's definitely somebody who's got a lot to share. And uh, I think his message, uh, you know, supersedes the martial arts in, in a lot of ways, especially around, you know, leaving ego at the door and, um, you know, it said another way, emptying the cup before you come in. Uh, it's just, it's important, not just, not just in the arts, but in so many areas of your life, uh, you're so much more, um, capable of, of taking on new information and new concepts when, when you do that and you're just, you're open to the world to, to show you something. So, uh, enough rambling out of me. I, I can't wait to share this with you and uh, we'll check you out in episode four. Take care. I know professor wants, wants me to have a few more students out here, which I'm going to try to do, but it's, it's hard work. It's hard work Absolutely. finding people. So uh, did you, have you, you were training a little bit on your own uh, over the last couple of years. Is that right? Yeah. So, really informally you know i don't i don't keep a specific schedule at the moment um i just kind of do what i do you know and i still get a lot of action for you know seminars and that kind of thing usually small groups type things and uh you know friends that uh you know call me up and they're like hey i want to i've got some interest with some friends that 
work and I want to do a women's self-defense class or I've got a youth group here at the church and I want to do a, a self-defense couple of days, you know, before the kids get go off to college or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, other than that, um, just kind of do what I do, what I feel like doing, you know, I've, I've been, uh, taking the last few years off from any real formal structured training. So, um, you know, I'm not, uh, uh teaching at the moment and don't have any yeah. official students. But. So I have to imagine though, that even, even though you take time off, I'm sure with as much, as much time as you've put in over the years that mentally there's still some part that's, you know, uh, uh, you're thinking about it at, at a minimum, right? Oh, absolutely. The way that I describe it to people is that, you know, after more than 20 years in the martial arts and Kempo specifically, it becomes kind of like a language that you speak fluently. And so even if you're not speaking in that language, you still catch yourself dreaming in that language, <laughs> you know, thinking your thoughts in that language. It's not a, it's not a thing where it just shuts off. You know, when you do martial arts, there's a, there's a point that you get to when you start to, developing uh, a real mastery um what i call uh ownership of of the the knowledge that you're that you're gaining from the sport um that it really just changes to a thought process and and it's then it's it's really more of a lifestyle than you know just i go to this club and i work out and you know yeah so instead of that that concept where it's like I need a workout this week, so I'm going to go to the dojo and um, you know we'll put gloves on and we'll jump around for a little bit and that'll be that'll get my my heart rate up. It's really more about uh, the the concepts and the the nuance that goes into all of that. It it becomes um, something where you you probably it comes more naturally when you're in the studio as it than than it does um, when you're out of the studio when you really do the heavy thinking about um, about the concepts and things like that. It, it, it almost seems like a role reversal where, you know, when you first start out, it's like you're in the school and you like, there's so much information coming at you and there's so many inputs that like you want to explode within 45 minutes. Um, where the, when you're teaching or when you do have that experience, it's, it's, um, it becomes more natural in the studio, but then outside of the studio, it allows you, that's the time where you get to think the big thoughts and um, explore new concepts. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been said by, uh, by Bruce Lee and, and other masters that the whole purpose of the curriculum is to not need the curriculum anymore. The whole purpose of the system is to not need the system. You know, you start out, you don't know how to move. You don't know how to react. You don't know how to think. And so you basically start mimicking, right? Right. And it, it's kind of like that fake it till you make it analogy where you're going through the motions until all of a sudden you understand the motions. And then you're going through the, the mindset for, with the pre-prescribed motions and, and, techniques and katas until you actually start to see why they make sense. And then as you really get 
higher and higher in, in your understanding of the martial arts, um, you start to see that learning another technique isn't going to make me better. And learning another form isn't going to make me better, you know. And that's that's the point that you get to when you're, you know, some people, depending on your system, depending on how long it takes you to get to black belt, I would say somewhere around the nine to ten year mark, you reach that point where it's like, okay, I could learn another technique, but there's only so many ways to kick and punch, and I've got this down. And you really don't gain from further curriculum, right? Unless it's something drastically different by switching styles or, you know, adding something to your curriculum from another system or looking at it from another perspective so that you can get a fresh uh, look at, at what you've been doing and, and kind of glean something from, you know, from that new perspective. Totally. Are you, uh, would you ever go back? Like, would you, would you ever turn the clock back to a certain point in, in your training and, and do it over again or, uh, like go through that experience again, kind of that transition from mimicking to, um, to mastery? Absolutely. You know, there was, there was a time in my life. Um, I think the most exciting time in my life in the martial arts was, when I came to professor's school here in Des Moines, you know, I had been um, a martial artist for a long time at that point. And um, when I started training under professor, there was just a way that he has of opening you up to what the martial arts system means to you personally, where it's no longer just going through a system and memorizing a system and you know, we have in the uh, uh, American Kempo circles, we have certain people that we've allowed to have the um, uh, the classification of master, you know, whether it be Ed Parker or Larry Tatum or, you know, wh whoever it was. And in that culture, it's not, not really appropriate for you to consider yourself as some form of master until you've had this 70 year career in the martial arts. And I right. think that the most beautiful thing about uh, professor's approach to Chinese Kempo and martial arts in general is that the, he was the first one to, to, um, uh, to sh share with me the perspective that, you know, there's a level of mastery in the martial arts that's kind of like when you get your master's degree in college. It's not in no way, shape, or form meaning that you're the master and you know everything. It's it's more of a just an acceptance of, okay, I'm making this personal. Right. Which is probably the ultimate step in a, in a teacher's life and, and one that I start to try to convey to people around, you know, brown belt level is that what separates a instructor from a really, really great instructor is the ownership of that knowledge. You know, it becomes what I call proprietary knowledge. There's a lot of people out there that are teaching and exercising what I call um, procedural knowledge, right? This is what we do because this is what we do. And it was always one of my greatest points of frustration in the martial arts when I'd go to a seminar or something and I'd be teaching something and I would have guys just, you know, hanging on every word I say, watching everything we're doing, 
in, they're they're full in, but I'm not wearing a belt or I'm not in a, in a certain setting. And then when it comes out that, oh, I'm, I'm with this school or I'm this rank or I have this background or whatever it is, you can see certain people just kind of shut off, you know, huh. and it, it's, it's, in my opinion, the most important thing to get that, that to that place where you own what you're talking about and what you're teaching. And the only way that you get that is through, you know, hours and hours and hours of practice and then putting that practice to the test until you know it front, back, inside and out. And at that point, the specific system, the school, the the rank, it really becomes immaterial. And when you develop that mindset, I think that's really what separates you is, is you know, taking ownership of it and saying, this is mine. Yeah. And so it makes something other people know, but what I'm teaching you today or what I'm saying here right now, this is mine. Right. Yeah. So where do you think people get that, um, that sort of prejudice from, you know, when it comes to, uh, the system, you know, particular system or, you know, thinking that, that one is better than the other or a particular lineage is, is, you know, more, more established or more accomplished than another, where, where on earth does that come from? And I'm sure it's ages old, but what, what's your opinion on that? You know, I think a lot of that comes from, um, the human nature and, and our propensity to derive identity from what we do, who we associate with. And, you know, we, we, we start that at a really early age. You've got people that you ask them, Hey, or you, you run into somebody and you meet them. Tell me about yourself. I'm a football player. I'm a wrestler. I'm a I'm a this or I'm a that. And they really cheapen who they are by relegating it down to activities and groups that they belong to, or you know, income or status of some kind based on something that's absolutely nothing to do with who they are as a human being. And that's easy. That's an easy trap to fall into. You know, that's something that that uh, you see people latch on to in the martial arts as well. To where you know, I come from the Tracy Kempo system, and uh, if uh, you're not familiar with the background of the Tracy system, like some of your listeners might not be, um, Chinese Kempo was brought to the United States. It was starting to be uh, taught to American students and um, James Matotes was the uh, the master that was doing that, and he taught Ed Parker, the Tracy brothers, and a, and a, and a long list of um, other Kempo stylists. And you know, there there came a point when Ed Parker, as a um, an American in Hawaii, and he was a uh, a doc doctorate in kinesiology and, and human movement and he started to put science and and uh, you know more modern thinking into the martial arts which was a pivotal point in the martial arts um, and years later what you get is this kind of prejudice sometimes this political atmosphere where you're not real Chinese Kempo if you're kind of stuck in the middle of that in between that which is kind of the background that I came from and what's amusing to me is that you'll see these people in different systems making comments about, like, for example, 
well, I don't do tournaments because Ed Parker didn't do tournaments, <laughs> which is silly, you know, and, and yeah, he didn't compete in tournament tournaments, but he hosted tournaments. Sure. You know, uh, one of, uh, one of the biggest breakout moments in Bruce Lee's life was when Ed Parker allowed him something like an hour speaking engagement in the middle of a tournament um, to showcase Juke Kindo and, and his philosophies. And because, you know, the two of them were close and, and uh, you know, they shared a lot of what at the time were really cutting edge ideals. And it just, it shook the martial arts community to the core hearing these guys talking about how, um, you know, the dogma of traditional martial arts needed to be broken. And I think that we got to that point somewhere along, you know, maybe, oh, I would say the mid 90s to 2000s where you'd hear a lot of people who trained with Ed Parker and now Ed Parker's gone and they just kept, you know, going back to things that he said and never putting their own flair on it, except for just a couple right. of guys, you know, who'd been in it so long that they were, they were allowed to do that, but like nobody else was. And so when I started training with professor, you know, he, the first thing out of his mouth, when I started having some, um, you know, I started training in his system, and as any good instructor does, he started to see where my hangups were, and he he started encouraging me on the lines of, okay, you know, you're good at what you do, but what's your take, and and you know, how is this unique to what you do? And with that freedom, that that was probably where my martial arts career, um, as an instructor, really caught fire because. Because, um, you know, I really had never thought of it that way. Yeah. Well, it, uh, for, for context for everybody, you came in when I was, I think, uh, a green belt or yeah, as a green belt in professor Brungan system. And, um, you and I have, have been catching up over the last uh, few months. And, um, I remember when, when you came in, it was definitely a an eye-opening experience to see uh, a, a level of expertise that was so different from what we experienced at the school um, and just in a like in a totally different package like seeing it was my first exposure to American Kempo even though we had a few practitioners in in Des Moines uh, it, it wasn't I, I had never been exposed at, at that like sort of firsthand level and it was shocking um and it was awesome to see just like the power that you approached all of your uh, kata with um the the variety of hand techniques that you you shared with us like i i still teach a lot of what you taught me um and i just like i, I told you um a few weeks ago it's like i i'm a better martial arts for martial arts for what you showed me when you came in and i think um to sort of put a, a point on all of this conversation around, you know, lineage and where, where people have hangups and things like that. It's like, I, I, I believe that if you can approach the martial arts in an egoless way, you get way more out of it than you do. If you're so obsessed with who's doing what or ahead of you or behind you or where this system came from or, um, or who's teaching it or, or not. I, I think everybody has something to teach and yeah, there's a lot of per person personalities out there that are going to rub you the wrong way. But 
at least try to approach training with an open mind, especially training with a new instructor. And I have to say it was hard at first when you came in just because it was so different. Um, but damn it, if it wasn't like super impressive too. So <laughs> it was so well, great. Well, you know, you guys, it was amusing because, you know, you guys, when I come in the door and I started teaching, you know, um, y'all thought I was a savage man. Like, <laughs> It was pretty neat. It was it was a really interesting experience, you know. And and to to give a little bit of the, the background on me, um, you know, when I started in the martial arts, it was 1991. Uh, I was 12 years old, and a karate school opened up in the backyard. You know, literally 100 yards off my back porch. This building goes up, and it's a karate school. And I wasn't into football. I wasn't into, um, you know, team sports, school sports. And, you know, my dad is, is a, is a great man and a, and a, you know, decorated combat veteran. And, and so when I asked him, Hey, I want to do, I want to do karate. He was like, hell yeah, we're going to do this. Let's, let's get you signed up over there. And like a lot of parents do, um, I don't think that he had really any expectations from that other than we're going to take him to a karate school he's going to learn something and probably one of the most frustrating things in my life as a teacher or as a friend of people who want to get their kids into martial arts is that people excuse me people will come to me and they'll be like hey uh, I want to take my get my kid into karate where's a good school or, or what's a good system right and the problem is is that having a good martial arts experience is kind of like a pie that's divided into the three parts and the first First part is luck, you know, and I'll come back to that. But the second part is, is discipline. And the third part is talent. You know, if you want to be good at anything, you're going to have to work for it. And so it's going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of dedication. And martial arts is widely known, you know, worldwide as a, as a discipline system, right? If you don't have discipline, you have nothing in the martial arts. And, as with any sport, if you're going to be really great at it, you know, you're going to have to have some kind of knack for it. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, any person won't gain or benefit from or learn and develop in the martial arts just from enjoying their, their journey and, and, and being involved in that. But you've got to try new things and see what you're good at. When I walked in the door, though, at Panetta's Kempo in Green River, Wyoming, the the number one thing I had on my side at that moment in my life was luck. So I walk in the door to this place and I had no idea the differences between hard styles, soft styles, um, you know, different kinds of karate, different kinds of, of martial arts in general. I just knew this is a martial arts school and I want to do martial arts. Well, I walk in the door and it's a school taught by a world champion mm -hmm. and his instructor was a world champion. And in that school, at that time, the main body of the class was made up of, of people who were all very talented, very athletic, very driven martial artists. You know, Jason Jones, uh, Lamont Glass, you know, guys that are well known in the martial arts circuits that, you know, they're, they're wonderful instructors. And today, 
you know, you say those names and, and, and people that, that compete, they know who I'm talking about. But at those, at that time, those guys, you know, were under belts. And so I come walking in the door at 12 years old and I've got a world champion instructor who doesn't know me from Adam. And he says, well, this kid's, you know, he's, he's kind of a big dude. So we're going to throw him in the adult class because he's too big for the kids class. And that was where the luck started because as a, a young man, I was competing with full-grown adults. You know, I was training and learning to fight full-grown adults from the age of 12. Wow. So as I, as I get going, you know, I'm starting to see these guys who are older than me. You know, they're all two or three years older than me, and they're, they're ahead of me. You know, they're ahead of me physically. They've been training longer. And so it created this atmosphere where I had no choice but to fully commit myself to, you know, making this work. And, sure. and, and it really took, I think a unique circumstance to create that environment where now all of a sudden, you know, I'm learning on that level. I'm competing on that level. and I'm pushing myself to be what they are at a point in my life where I really wouldn't have under other circumstances been, been, been reaching so far out. I want to I want to back up a little bit because sure you know when I when I when I was training with Panetta's Kempo, um, like I said that the there's a lot of students that come into a school or you meet a lot of students that are like well I want to be a world champion well I want to be a um, whatever it is they want they want to excel in a specific sport and one of the things that I had going for me was the fact that. Um, if you go to a school that's already kind of immersed in that competition lifestyle, they don't just take you to tournaments. They take you to the right tournaments. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, 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 you're not wasting your time going from competition to competition. And the only thing you get at the end of the day is a trophy or the, the chance to compete, which those are great things. But, you know, you're actually competing on a circuit. You're getting points towards a a national system, and then eventually um, invitational competition. And so, those are things that I could not have picked as a 12 year old kid picking a martial arts school. So, so really, I just had luck on my side. But then, when I get you know really entrenched in this community, you know, I'm going to the right the right tournaments. I'm racking up the right points and about 1996 I became the uh, number one ranked fighter in the United States as well as the number one ranked for my age group and rank um, in forms weapons and self-defense and that's when you start getting invited to these you know upper tier tournaments where you can really have the opportunity to to compete against the right people and, and, and stand out and so that's what I did when the the, uh, when the National Black Belt League and Sport Karate International um, World Championships started sending me invitations, you know, at first they were in foreign countries because every other year they're in the United States and then they're in some other country. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would get these invitations, but, it, you know, it's it's in Guatemala or someplace. And right. there's no way that I could afford to go. My, my family could not afford to send me to those tournaments. 
but then again, a sheer stroke of luck, you know, was that, um, in 1997, the World Games came to Colorado Springs, and I was living in Green River, Wyoming. Well, that's an eight-hour drive, and so I can do this, right? And, you know, that's not to say that I hadn't put my time in, that I hadn't worked my guts out um, to make use of that opportunity when it came, but, it, but you know, on some level, there is a, a a little bit of luck that goes into to finding that path, you know, early on. Sure. So how how does somebody who is interested in competing pick the right tournament for them? You know, if you kind of got to determine what your goals are and, you know, if you're if you're looking to be a martial artist or, or excuse me, a, a a champion martial artist, um You've got to find out what the strongest um, tournament system is in your area. You know, it, over here on the, on the in the Minnesota uh, Chicago area, you know, it's pro- probably ISKA. Mm-hmm. If you're on the coast, it's probably you know either ISKA or, or NASCA or one of those those uh, uh, systems and. You really don't want to waste your time and your money going to tournaments that aren't going to push you towards nationals and, you know, the U.S. Open and different competitions that are kind of governed by those bodies because, you know, your time and your resources are limited and, you know, you want to be focused on that to the point that I know a lot of guys that they specialize in this specific event, you know, maybe they are great martial artists all around, but they only compete in weapons or they only compete in fighting. Well, I guess that's, they save that. That's a question that I have is, is, you know, is it just as important to be well-rounded as a martial artist, like understanding your system, um, as it is to get really good at a tournament form or to learn how, um, you know, the sport karate rules for, for fighting, like what's, um, how, how do you, how do you balance that out? You know, I think that, uh, a lot of that has to do with your instructors. You know, when I came up, I had instructors that, um, their idea of tournament competition was we show up at the tournament and first and foremost, we represent the school. And so we do everything we can do to facilitate the tournament directors. Uh, we judge we we serve we do whatever we got to do if we got to sweep the floors that's what we're going to do all of the time that we're not competing and then when it comes time to compete we're going to compete in all of our events you know forms weapons fighting self-defense creative musical uh team fighting um continuous full contact whatever it is um and you know so there was a lot of times that i'd show up to go to a competition and i'd be fighting guys that they showed up and they were sitting in an RV in the parking lot sleeping and hanging out and eating good food all day long while I was judging and sitting in a steel folding chair and you know my breakfast lunch and dinner might have been a couple of kudos bars and a Gatorade and then we get in the ring you know and you know that's not taking anything away from them they were there to win and they were to win there to win one thing and that was just fighting yeah but I came from from that culture where 
you know, our guys had the philosophy that if you're going to be good, if you're going to compete, then we're going to compete in everything. And, you know, that, that takes a specific mindset that really, in my opinion, that, that kind of lends itself to making you a more complete martial artist. But, you know, specifically, there's a lot of people that say, well, I don't see the benefit in competing because, you know, in the street, there's no <laughs> referee to call break, you know. Right. Yeah, fair enough. But, you know, we, we can't be so obtuse in our training that, you know, our tournament training takes over. And when we have to defend our home or our family or our loved ones or ourselves, we can't say, oh, well, there's not a referee. So, you know, it, it just, in my mind, that's kind of silly, but. I hear those comments, you know. Sure. Yeah. And I, uh, one of the things that I was talking to Professor Brongan about uh, the other day was um, kind of the, the, how things have changed. You know, he's been, he's been around doing this for 50 some years now. And one of the, um, one of those Midwest tournaments is the Diamond Nationals. And we were talking about how much, that tournament specifically has changed since he started going, you know, back in the late seventies. Um, what, what are some of your observations in, in how things have changed since you started? Well, you know, again, you know, that was probably uh, another stroke of luck that when I, when God chose me to be on this earth, man, martial arts was in its, in its prime, you know, it was burning like wildfire. You know, you had, Chuck Norris and Van Damme and all these, all, you know, movies were all martial arts. Martial arts was everywhere. And so when I showed up to a tournament as a young underbelt, you know, I remember showing up to my first tournament to fight and there were 30 competitors, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, or more. I remember, you know, walking into tournaments and they, they would line us up around the ring and whereas maybe today you'll see a, a, a row of uh, competitors in the front of the ring, I've seen tournaments where competitors were, were sitting in a horseshoe all the way around a 20 by 20 ring, three rows deep. Wow. You know, and nobody's getting out of there anytime soon. You know, these, these judges are, are not getting paid. They're dedicating themselves to promoting the sport. And it was tournaments were hell, man. I mean, you'd, you'd show up and you'd be competing sometimes – Friday, Saturday, and into the late, late hours on Sunday to get the tournament completed. And, and uh, you know, because the sport was just so popular. And again, that's just one of those things that helped me grow as a martial artist. Because when I showed up, man, tournaments are single elimination. And you may have to fight. You may have to fight a dozen guys before you get out of the building. Wow. And, yeah. So, so. That's where I started from. And then over the years, I got to see a lot of new things that the martial arts community had to find a place for. You know, the earliest competitions were just traditional forms, traditional weapons, and fighting. That was it. There were three divisions. Now, I see tournament flyers, and there are over 250 different divisions. Right. You know, you've got, in in just kata, you've got traditional kata. And that can be broken down into, you know, uh, karate, taekwondo, Okinawan, Kempo Polynesian, um, you know, several different traditional divisions. And then you go to open forms divisions and you've got 
open forms, creative forms, musical creative forms, choreograph fighting, all kinds of these different things where people are saying, you know, I'm going to do this form, but I'm going to do it set to music. Well, the first times that started to happen, we didn't know what to do with it. Right. And I was, I was there at the tournament the first time they made a division for, for team fighting or the first time they made a division for musical creative. And I had judges coming up to me as an underbelt saying, hey, hey, would you judge this division? Because we don't know how. We don't know what to look <laughs> for. You, you've been doing this three or four times now, and we don't even know what to look for, right? And so to get to see that evolve to where it is now today where, you know, you, you walk into a, to a tournament with 250 different divisions, you better know specifically what you're there to compete for. Sure. So you, you should put this to rest for me. I, I, I've seen, um, I've seen videos of, you know, the, the musical forms and, uh, the non-traditional kata. I am sure the answer to this is yes, but these are, these forms are just as hard to do as the traditional kata and they take just as much work to prepare for and people work just as hard. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So imagine this, you know, especially at an upper rank level, you show up to a competition and you're going to do a musical creative form or a creative form and you see guys out there doing backflips and, you know, 540 and 720s and all kinds of crazy stuff, parafusos, different kicks that we didn't even have names for when that stuff came out. You know, I remember I was in a tournament in Salt Lake and I saw Dustin Booker throw a, a capoeira kick in a an open form before and nobody knew how to react. You know, he, he, he popped up on one hand and, and, and threw a kick to the side. I didn't even know what capoeira was. Mm -hmm. And the judges didn't even know how to react. They're like, is that allowed? I, I guess it's allowed. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we have to find a metric for scoring that now, right? And so, so the thing about that kind of competition is they're looking at the entire form. You know, people say, well, nobody's ever going to throw a 720 in a fight. Well, that's true, right? But if that guy goes out there and his stances are crap, his strikes are just punches in the air. They don't make sense. There are no kind of combination. There are no nothing. He's not going to get a good score, no matter how good his acrobatics are, right? But if he has all of those things in place, stances and basics and all that stuff, and then he throws some kind of a double leg or, or a parafuso or something like that and nails it, he just took it to another level because he said, I already had this i was already on par with all of my basics and i just risked it all on a roll of the dice that i was going to be able to land that right right and so then the fact that that guy actually landed that he just did everything you're going to do plus some and so it, it really is that huge risk where okay i'm gonna land this technique or i'm gonna blow it all right here you know there's yeah there's coming back from it if I miss this and and I think that's what I loved about you know uh, the creative style uh, competitions is that you go out there by yourself you do everything right you throw something and risk it all 
you're either going to win first or you're going to not place because yeah. there's no, there's no coming back from landing on your face. Right. <laughs> so is there uh, is there a moment at which you were like, Oh yeah, I just, uh, I just, I, I got this. I, I totally landed the thing I wanted to land or, you know, I just showed them exactly what I came here to show them. Yeah. I mean, there was a time in my life and I'm, I'm not trying to be braggadocious or anything, but there was a time in my life when you've been competing on a circuit with a similar crowd from state to state and you walk up and you line up and you say, okay, I've been here. I've done this. I've competed with all these people. This guy's got that. This guy's got this and I'm going to win first. He's going to win second. He's going to win third. And with a pretty high degree of, of uh, accuracy, we could pretty much call that out. But then every once in a while, there'd be some sleeper that's been working on something that you haven't seen. He's been back at his dojo in the midnight hours throwing something crazy, and he springs it out of nowhere. And yeah. And it changes the game, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that was a really exciting time. You know, I remember when, uh, team fighting first came out, the, uh, national black belt league decided, well, we're going to have this team fighting competition, two, three man teams. They're all black belts. They're all going to fight. And when the Rocky mountain conference first, um, announced that they said, we're going to do this, uh, competition and because we want to get interest for this, it's free. Anybody wants to sign up, just come sign up. Well, all the black belts ran up there to sign up, and they had like three teams. It wasn't even enough to make a competition. And so they were like, well, what are we going to do about this? We need more people to compete. So then they decided, well, what if we let underbelts fight? And I remember specifically one tournament um, – I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it was Rexburg, Idaho or Billings, Montana, one of the two, where the judges said, okay, what if we let advanced rank underbelts fight? And the black belt community that was there kind of threw a fit because they knew that, you know, these youngsters that were coming up, they've been competing on kind of a different track. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't want to lose face by losing, you know, you don't want to be some third degree black belt losing to some green belt, you know? Right. And so I remember they literally said, okay, you guys can fight because I was one of the ones interested. They said, you guys can fight, but you've got to take your belts off. Yeah. And so, um, me, um, a buddy, Tom Irwin and Ron Rice competed in the first tournament that offered team fighting in, in the National Black Belt League, ISKA for or uh, Sport Karate International um, for for the Rocky Mountain Conference, and uh, we came very very close to winning that division. We didn't win, but I remember uh, uh, I fought uh, Troy McCaskill and beat him, and he was a black a seasoned black belt, and I wasn't even a brown belt. Yet. And wow. so it, after you know six months, they had more than enough. Uh, competitors to fill those divisions because people saw it and they're like, Hey, that looks like a lot of fun. Let's do it. And so then, you know, now we actually had team fighting for black belts and team fighting for underbelts. But, you know, like I said, it was just a time in the martial arts where 
it was so unique to its time period and it was creating something out of the competitors at the time that we'll probably never see again. You know, we're seeing it again, but we're seeing people grow in that environment, you know, at an earlier age because now it's more structured, but, but then it was just throwing you to the wolves, man. You know, you went, (laughs) you literally went in there with a chip on your shoulder to prove that, hey, I, I want to win. I don't care what the rank is, you know. Right. So what um, what do you see as the next the next thing? Because I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the, the future of the martial arts and kind of, you know, everything is cyclical. You know, we're um, with the popularity of, of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA and all of that stuff. Um, which I think is great. And I, I think it's a, a stellar workout and, um, you know, a great self-defense system. Um, you know, I, I also have a love for, you know, my own system and, you know, the, the, the Kempo Karate is, is what I'm interested in, um, you know, continuing to build on and, uh, to, I'd love to see it repopularized. And I don't know if, if you think that's possible or if it's got to change in order for it to, to come back around. What are your thoughts on on the future? You know, I think more than anything, what we're seeing is kind of a renaissance in the martial arts that was kind of like what happened um, when Kempo first became a system. You know, you had traditional martial arts confined to their own countries and then through trade routes, Um, people started getting exposed through their travels and trade to other countries, other martial arts systems, and they started picking things up here and there. And that's where Kempo came from, is that somebody started learning karate, and then they went to Japan and they started learning another form of karate, and and they learned something from this guy over here in China, and the next thing you know, you had this battle. You know, the martial arts movies kind of make a joke out of it, but that whole environment where people were saying my eagle claw can defeat your iron fist you know that that was a real thing you know people were going around saying hey i've picked up something new and it'll dominate what you've got and so what happened was people started competing and gaining notoriety based on whether or not what they were boasting was actually legitimate and new styles started to form and you know we had come fu in china and there were so many different forms of kung fu that when they started to become eclectic they didn't really have a word for it chun fa kind of became a slang for you know some form of of karate slash kung fu i don't know what it is and that eventually became chinese kempo right and so throughout the years that kind of you know developed into its own system and then it stagnated for a while and part of that was what we were talking about earlier where people kind of get indoctrinated and they kind of get set in their ways. And I started to see some of that with the Kempo system where people were closed off to new ideas because Ed Parker didn't teach that or Adriano Imperato didn't teach that. There was, there was this loyalty to those great masters of days gone by that was holding us back. And I was, I was a pretty young guy when I was the only one saying it in some of these 
you know, at the time, fairly new forums of martial arts chat rooms and, and, you know, seminar discussions that when I started voicing the, the concept that the next leap in martial arts is going to come when this generation of martial artists is gone and can no longer say, well, my instructor said this, right? Right. And that, that confinement no longer exists because now that guy's gone and the guy he taught is gone. And so, you know, people like Ed Parker have kind of, and I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but they've kind of become legend and, you know, there are less and less people every day that knew what he was like, that were actually there when he taught something. And so by default, there's, also less and less people who can cling to that and say I'm not breaking from this because I have a loyalty to my instructor and so as that happens and with the advent of the MMA competition circuit and people start to see that a little of this blended with a little of that becomes something very new um, we're probably actually on the precipice of seeing new martial arts systems evolve Sure, and so I think that's what the future is, is that here pretty soon, you know, we, we've experienced it ourselves. We're saying, okay, I was American Kempo. I was Chinese Kempo. I was Tracy Kempo. That was all great. But then when I started training with Professor and I picked up Pekiti Terja, uh, small circle jiu-jitsu, some of these other systems that, man, these, these systems just melt with Kempo on a DNA level. Right. It makes you something else, you know? And so now all of the guys that I know that are really, really high end martial artists, they're not one system guys. They're not one trick ponies. They go out there and they're like, Hey, yeah, I've got my foundation in this system because you have to have your foundation in something. Right. But my, my system has been altered by the ingraining of concepts from small circle jujitsu small circle uh, and, you know, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu or, you know, Pekiti Terja stick and knife fighting, Arnis and Kali, whatever it is, to the point that now what I teach is not what I learned, you know. And right. um, it, it makes it something very unique and, and, and much more powerful, really. And cross-training wasn't new, but the idea that you could actually blend the two together, it, it definitely has been new in our generation so i think that at the point where we're gone where we're the old men and we're we're no longer teaching anymore but the students that we taught that eclectic system to um they're going to be teaching that that's how they learned it and that's how it is and you take what works and you discard what doesn't and that's that is what martial arts is and so that that restraint that we had from the evolution of the martial arts to this point isn't going to be holding them back. And so I really think that it's going to be exciting to see what it becomes. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, um, I'm at a point where two things, one, you know, after having spent whatever, 15 years with professor, um, and now having this grasp of the system where I, I really recognize that there's a lot, a lot of different things in the Brungan system. Um, and, you know, some things we, we go deeper on than others. 
Um, I'm at a point where I, I feel like I need to find a, something to cross train in or something to complement the system. And, you know, there's so many options just because of the breadth of the system, you know, there's going deeper on, on jujitsu, there's going deep, deeper on the Ido. Um, if we want to do more with the sword work, uh, you know, learning more about FMA from, you know, uh, over, especially over here on the West coast from all of the, um, Inosanto, um, students over here, there's just, there's, so much to so much new to learn um, that would easily complement the system and you know the thing that i respect probably most about professors is what you've already touched on which is like hey add whatever you think makes sense as long as it works if it doesn't work don't put it in um right it's just it's such a a, i love the creativity that that uh that he's allowed us to have with with the system absolutely absolutely Cool. Well, as we're wrapping this up here, what's, uh, what's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who was thinking about getting into the arts, but, um, but hasn't yet done it for what, for whatever reason? Um, I would say do a little research and, and see what's around you go in and watch the, the classes, talk to the instructors, see if somebody speaks to you on, you know, a level that, that you really understand and, and, and it's something that kind of strikes a chord with you, you know, don't go into one school and think, well, this is what martial arts is because the, there's, there's a night and day's difference from one school to the next one system to the next. And you may not be happy with traditional karate, but you may love Aikido or you may not be happy with, um, MMA, but you may love a Kempo karate class. And, you know, don't lump them together and say, well, I tried a, I tried a martial arts school and I didn't like it. You know, just, you know, see what's out there. And if you don't find that, um, you know, don't lose your open mind and, uh, you know, just basically test the waters. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with trying one school, trying another school, you know, at, at some point you've got to dedicate and say, okay. I, I've got to get my foundation, so I'm going to stick it out here. But, you know, um, and I honestly do believe that cross-training is something that should wait a little bit. You know, I don't think that students should start cross-training right off the bat um, because you need that foundation to build off of. And if you don't have a strong foundation, then, you know, it's going to impede you in the long run. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I, I think back to my first couple of years um, in the martial arts and, you know, I, I didn't, um, I didn't shop around. I didn't, I didn't check out different schools. I just knew that um, I was sort of romanced by the idea of Kung Fu. And I, I you know, I spent a couple of years there and um, I can't say that I didn't leave with, uh, with nothing. That's a double negative try to sort that one out, but, um, sure. you know, I, I left with, I left with a lot. Um, but I remember after a few months at, at professors, just, just knowing in my heart, uh, not to get sappy that I, you know, I had made the right decision in, in moving to, to his school. And, um, it just felt right. It just feels like 
like family or it feels like uh, it's more natural for my body or whatever, whatever those, um, whatever those decision points are, you know, you have to make that for yourself. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that on another note, if I was, if I was going to give advice to students that were in the intermediate ranks, um, you've been training at a school for a little while and you really want to get good. Um, you know, we, we kind of mentioned earlier, checking your ego at the door, you know, be, be willing to learn whatever it is, put your time in, don't get ahead of yourself. You know, that even bleeds over into when you become a black belt, don't have this chip on your shoulder that, okay, now I've got to prove myself because I'm a black belt. Stay open-minded, you know, and main thing is check your fantasies, you know, <laughs> you, you want to root the fantasy out because they're going to hold you back. Right. I remember the first time I ever did stick fighting me and, and a good brother of mine, uh, Lamont glass, we're, we're going to stick fight. The only thing I knew about stick fighting at that time was watching Jeff Speakman in the perfect weapon. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so buddy, I had this pair of extremist sticks and we were going to stick fight and he beat my ass. <laughs> and it was because I was trying to emulate what I'd seen in a movie because that was my fantasy of what stick fighting was. And he was just dominating me. Right. Right. And it took a while to figure out that that's what was going on. And there's so many places in my martial arts career where I've seen that, where it's like, okay, stop with all this pretense about, you know, you're, you're not trying to, to live some martial arts fantasy here. Let's get real with what we're doing. Let's get off aut autopilot. Let's stop going through the motions and let's get intentional about every movement every class and be intent on whatever it is that you're doing and once you do that like i said that 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 curriculum that system becomes personal property to you you have mastered that thing it's become a part of who you are and from there you're going to explode you know you're going to become 10 times the martial artist you would be if you're just in there pretending to be something you're not that's awesome that's awesome well hey it has been uh in, like entirely way too long since uh, we've had a good chat about the martial arts and um i'm glad that uh, i'm glad that you're open to doing this and um maybe in a few months we'll come back and and see what you're up to absolutely absolutely cool I all probably, right well thanks so much shay we'll uh we'll chat with you again soon Okay, buddy. Talk to you later. Bye.